Good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Wade. Uh, I have the great joy of serving these wonderful college students right here, which means if you are new and you're a college student, uh, drift this way, and we will drift your way, and we'll meet together in the middle so we can meet you. That'd be great. Um, we are continuing our series in the DNA of Parkview. Today, we're going to be in Luke 24, thinking through the second trait, the second trait or the second mark of what it means to be a disciple, which is to live God's story. So to catch you up, if you are new or just figuring out what this DNA of Parkview series is all about, it's basically an introduction or overview of this church. Welcome to Parkview. Here's who we are. And so our big why our big why is pursuing Jesus together in everyday life. And our how, how we go about pursuing Jesus together in everyday life, is by gathering to worship Sundays, growing in Christ's likeness, and then going on mission. That's our how. So why, how, and then what? What happens when you are a person who gives yourself to pursuing Jesus together in everyday life by gathering, growing, and going? What happens? Well, first thing is you become a person who enjoys God's presence Second thing that happens is you become a person who longs to live God's story, to see the Bible as the, the one true story of, your, of the whole world and your, your life in particular, and to live in response to God's great story revealed to us in the Bible. And then you become a third, a person of love, loving God's people, and then you share God's gifts, number four, and then you serve God's world. Those are the five traits or the five kind of identity markers of a disciple here at Parkview Church. Today we're looking at live God's story in Luke 24. It's a longer passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a part of it. And after I read this, I'm going to pray and ask that you would join me in prayer. We're going to start in verse 25. Jesus has just encountered uh, two of his disciples on this road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a little town seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus walking alongside of them. They're trying to understand what in the world's going on with these events that just happened about Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus opens up their mind to the, to the scriptures. He says this, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, necessary that the Christ, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, and then going through the prophets, a.k.a. the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus is showing that it's telling one large story, one big story, all about this suffering and rising Messiah, which is Jesus himself. All the things in the scriptures that concern himself. That's what Jesus wants us to see. That when we live God's big story, what we see is God's big stories about Jesus. We have to find our little lives, our little stories, under the umbrella of the big story. That's what we're going to see today. So would you pray with me? Ask the Lord's help as we open God's word. Father, as we approach your word, uh, we need the Holy Spirit who opens our hearts to see Jesus in all of the Bible. And so, I pray that by your spirit, you would exalt Jesus from this text here in Luke 24 into our hearts uh, so that we'd love Jesus, so that we would honor you, that you'd get much glory. 
And so, Lord, as we pray, we would seek that you would give us all that you want to give us, that we'd receive all that you love to give, love all that you love, trust all that you promise, obey all that you command for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you come home from work or class or whatever it is that you come home from, uh, how would you explain your day to one of your friends uh, or your roommates, your spouse? I'm sure it would go nothing like this. Hello. I drove. I got to work. I sat down. I worked. I drove back. Here I am. Hello. Good day. No, definitely not. What would you do? You tell a story. Because you know why? Because you're a human being, and human beings love to tell stories. You'd say something like this. Well, so I left home, and I was on the highway, and while I was on the highway, some, mm, he drove right in front of me, not a good day so far, got to work, already frustrated, and then, of course, my boss calls me into her office. She sits me down, and we had a little job review. Mm, didn't do so well on that. So I'm feeling real encouraged by 9 a.m. in the morning. No, I'm not. Well, after that, uh, luckily, I had lunch with Mark. You know Mark from the office. Mark told this really funny story and had a hilarious ending. And uh, it just got me laughing. I was trying to eat my sandwich. I was choking on my sandwich. I was laughing so hard. It was so amazing. And the rest of the day was pretty good. Got some work done. Hopped in my car. And oh, man, that great song came on. I love that song. You know the chorus. It goes like this. And you sing it. And you say, you know, not a bad day. Not a bad day. What did you just do? You told a story, right? To understand who we are, to explain our lives, we have to connect our lives to a story. You don't just go fact by fact or proposition by proposition when telling of who you are. You tell a story. You narrate something. Well, authors Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew discuss a story by an author named Alistair McIntyre. And here's the story. You ready? Imagine a man named Sam at a bus stop, and he's waiting for a bus. After a while, another man named Mike walks up and stands next to him and says, The name of the common wild duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. Now, the meaning of the sentence is pretty clear. Common wild duck equals Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. Okay. But why did Mike say this, and what's really going on here? You see, to understand the significance of this phrase, you have to locate it underneath a larger story. And so we have three options with how to understand Mike. Option one, Mike has mistaken Sam for another person he saw yesterday in the library who asked him, do you by any chance know the Latin name of the common duck? To which Mike replied, Oh, there's Sam. So he walks up to him and says, ah, I got the answer. The name of the common wild duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. Okay, that's one. Number two, Mike is a painfully shy person who needs help relating to other people. And so in a recent discussion with his mother, she recommended that he talk with strangers more often. Okay, and, and Mike responds, oh, mom, well, what would I say? And his mom just says, oh, honey, just say whatever comes to mind. Well, it just so happens that Mike had been reading one of his favorite books, Wild Ducks and Their Northern Migration by Timothy Jenkins. 
I don't think that's a book, but there you go. It is a book now. And so here he is after loving Jenkins' book on the northern migration of ducks. Not sure if ducks migrate north, but you know, there you go. And uh, he's walking the bus stop. He sees Sam. He's a little timid, uh, but here's what Mike says. He says, uh, uh, the name of the common wild duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. Okay, bye. You know, and there you go. Third. Third option is this, Mike is a Russian spy. And he's arranged to meet his contact at the bus stop. And guess what the code is that will reveal his identity to his secret contact? The name of the common wild duck is Astronicus, Astronicus, Astronicus. You see, we cannot understand who Mike is or what he's doing unless we locate him in a bigger story. And so it is with Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot understand who Jesus is and why he came unless you locate him in a bigger story. And that, my friends, is why Luke 24 is such a wonderful gift to us. Because Jesus is going to help us, his disciples, see who he is by locating him in a bigger story. So the question we're going to ask is this. How do we see Jesus for who he really is? How do we really embrace and grasp the real Jesus? And the answer is twofold. Luke 24 shows us the, the answer is through the story of the scriptures and through the sign of the supper. The story of the scriptures and the sign of the supper. That's how we get to know who Jesus is, those two things. But before we get to that, before we answer our big question, how do we see Jesus for who he really is? We need to ask a preliminary question. It is this. Why don't we see Jesus? Why aren't we embracing him for who he is? Why are our hearts cold towards him? Why don't we love him how we should and see him for who he really is? Why is that? Well, Luke 24 helps us. Starting in verse 32, or sorry, starting in verse 13, we have to join these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Here it is. That very day, Two of them are going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the day of the resurrection of Jesus. By the way, sidebar, I know some of you may struggle with the whole thing of uh, resurrection and miracles, and that's okay. That's okay. Uh, this sermon is not a defense for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we are assuming that is historical, reliable fact. If you are still struggling with that, please see me afterward. I'd love to talk with you. Now, back to the sermon. That very day, two of them are going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they are talking with each other about these things that had happened just a few days ago. While they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself <laughs> draws near and starts walking with them. Hmm. Verse 16, but their eyes, okay, you see that verse 16? You see verse 16? Their what? Their eyes are kept from recognizing him. Now this is fascinating. Here we have disciples of Jesus, and Jesus is there, real Jesus. He's right there, but their eyes, they can't, they can't see him. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. What's going on here? Well, keep reading verse 17. And Jesus says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stand still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answers Jesus, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there 
in these days. Where have you been, dude? Are you like the only, seriously, are you seriously like the only person that has not been around Jerusalem and has not heard what's been going on? And don't you just love Jesus' response, verse 19? What, how fascinating. Jesus, which is truly remarkable. Verse 19, Jesus says to him, what things? Hmm, tell me. I'm intrigued. So this discussion is focusing on the things that have happened in Jerusalem in recent days. And so what are these things? What are their significance? Histronicus, histronicus, histronicus. You, how do we understand what that phrase is all about? Well, we see the, the, these disciples are going to tell a story, okay? They're going to locate these events. They're going to narrate them. Here we go. You ready? Verse 19, they say to him, concerning these things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who was a prophet, mighty, a mighty prophet, indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, so key. But we had hoped that this Jesus, this mighty, powerful Jesus, this Jesus that would cast out demons, this Jesus that would just speak forgiveness and speak, you know, revenge, rebuke against the, those in power. Man, this powerful, strong Jesus, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But he was killed. And now, they say, it's the third day, and since these things have happened. And then there's some women of our company. They've amazed us. They went to the tomb. They didn't find the body. They came back saying there were these angels that said he had risen from the dead. He's still alive. And then some of us were like, okay, check us out. And they go there, and then look at the end of verse 24, what does it say? But him they did not see. Disciples cannot see Jesus for who he really is. The name of the common wild duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. You see, the only way to understand these events is to locate them in a bigger story. What's that bigger story? Well, these disciples were thinking of a story, but it was the wrong story. Here's the story these disciples were thinking about. You see, in first century Judaism, they had been, uh, the Jewish people were waiting for rescue. They were waiting for redemption, a putting of rights, what had gone wrong in their life. You see, the problem in first century Judaism at this time when these men and Jesus are walking along, there is a common story, and it goes something like this. We have a terrible, terrible problem. And it's the Roman government that is idolatrous and, uh, idolatrous and unjust. And they are oppressing us, God's people. And that is wrong. And we need someone to come and rescue and to put this to right. And here's the solution. The story would say this. God, don't you remember? The Jewish people would tell each other, God's the redeeming God. Don't you remember Egypt? What happened when God's people were under slavery, under an unjust ruler, Egypt? What happened? God came in and with mighty works and power, he rescued us. He redeemed us from oppression and slavery under the Egyptian powers. You know what? God's going to do it again. In fact, I know God's going to do that redemption again because in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, there was this, you might say, echo of a voice. There was this echo, this thing that we were hearing uh, that God had promised long ago through the prophets that he would send a person, this anointed king, this Mishael, this in Greek translated Christos, this Christ person. 
who was going to be anointed by God with power and strength to defeat God's enemies. And look what happens. Verse 19, if you look down again with me, and here comes Jesus, a prophet, what? Mighty indeed, and word before God. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Yes, here he is. Here's our guy. He's come to conquer those Romans. He is strong. He's powerful. This is our Redeemer. And yet, verse 20 and 21, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Ah, we had hoped that he was our Redeemer. Ah. So why don't the disciples see Jesus? Here he is. He's there, but they can't see him. You know why? It's because you can't see, you can't embrace the person of Jesus if you don't understand the work that he came to do. You cannot understand who he is unless you understand what he came to do, why he came. Do you see what's happening there? They thought Jesus was the type of person who comes with a sword. They wanted a Messiah with a sword, but Jesus, he's a Messiah that gets crucified. Hmm. Look at verse 26. Jesus wants to, verse 25 and 26, Jesus wants to help his disciples. And he's going to help them see him, okay? Jesus is going to begin this process now of, of, of correcting the vision. It's like, you know, I wear glasses, as you can see, and uh, I need help. Someone needs to help me get my vision straight so I can actually see. Jesus is this kind of this wonderful optometrist, we might say. He's about to help his disciples actually see him, to notice who he is, to embrace who he is. How does he do this? Well, look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that, what? The prophets have spoken. What did the prophets speak? Verse 26. The prophets spoke that it was necessary that the Christ should, what? That the Messiah should, what? Suffer should suffer these things and enter into glory. You see, you think of Messiah coming with a sword, but the whole Old Testament is telling a story of a Messiah going to suffer. You see what's going on there. It's necessary that the Christ should suffer. And why is it necessary for Jesus to suffer on a cross? Well, I have a friend whose mother three weeks ago started having pain in her stomach. Maybe she thought it was indigestion. Maybe it was something she was eating. She didn't really know what was going on until she went to a doctor who gave her a scan, and she realized the problem was not stomach issues. The problem was not indigestion. It wasn't what she was eating. Her problem was worse than what she thought. It was appendicitis. And if you have appendicitis, you better believe it was necessary for her to suffer through the pain of a surgery. Why? Because her need was so dire. You see, disciples of Jesus, we think our problems are external to us. We think our problem is that uh, our spouse just won't get it together. And if they would really fix what's going on, we would be much more content and happy. Uh, you see, uh, we as disciples, we think the problem is external to us. Uh, our problem uh, is uh, in society. You know, society is going uh, in terrible places very fast. And uh, it's, it's outside of us. We are just like, friends, we are just like, just like the disciples of the first century. 
Sure, we don't want Messiah with a sword, but we want Messiah with what? A credit card, maybe? Who will come and help us purchase the things and comfort that we so long for in our life? What does your Messiah have in his hand? They thought it was going to be a sword. We do the same thing. So you see, we don't, we don't see Jesus because we don't know why he came. We don't know what he came to do. And Jesus is trying to open our eyes, correct our vision to actually see. And he's saying, this Messiah came to suffer. Why do you suffer? It's because the problem is not external to you. The problem is something inside of you, friends. Your problem is your sin. The problem of the human race is our sinfulness, our willful rejection of God as our loving king of our lives, our rebellion against God as our loving father. We don't have indigestion. We have appendicitis. Something's much more terrible than just what's external to us. It's something within us. It is necessary for Jesus to suffer to redeem us from this problem, friends. This is what we need. We need redemption, a rescuing from our sin. And here's what Jesus offers us. He offers us real sight to who he is because he's going to start explaining what kind of Messiah he is. Look down at verse 27. This is the first way Jesus helps us see who he is. It's through the story of the scriptures. Through the story of the scriptures. Jesus says in verse 27, he begins with Moses and all the prophets and interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so he gives them a lens by which to see him. A lens through the scripture to see who Jesus is. Because in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we have the story of what God is doing to fix what is broken in this world and what most fundamentally is broken in us, our sinful rebellion against God. So what does this mean? The story of Scripture is in the beginning there's a God of love who loves this world and creates a world of love and puts people he loves in this world of love so they could enjoy his love and then spread his love to all the earth. What do they do? These people... Seek to, instead of loving God, turn inward and love self. They want to be the king of their own lives. That is what sin is. It's choosing for yourself to be the king, the Lord, the governor, the ruler of your own life. And so the fundamental problem is that. And so God, very early on, Genesis 3.15, he gives this wonderful promise, okay? And he says there's this, uh, this and he gives it as a, as a, a curse against this serpent, This evil serpent that was supposed to be crushed, he was not. He slithered in there and he tempted Adam and Eve and led them away from God's love. And God says to this evil serpent that there is an offspring of this woman who's coming and he will crush the head of the serpent, but he will also be struck. And so in this act of suffering, victory will happen. Who does that sound like to you? Jesus. Let's go on a little further. In Genesis 12, God is going to uh, redeem the whole world. And guess what he does? He chooses one man named Abraham. And through, he says, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bring my blessing, my salvation, my restoration, my redemption through your family. Do you know who fulfills this great promise? Jesus. Galatians 3, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. Exodus, what's Exodus all about? Exodus, right, shows a God rescuing his people from slavery through what? The shed blood of an innocent lamb. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Leviticus, oh boy, right? Leviticus is the point where we were reading our Bibles, we get Leviticus, it's like game over, you know? 
But no, Leviticus is amazing, because what do we find in Leviticus? We see a holy God, a good God, choosing to dwell with sinful, broken people. Now, how is that going to happen if we have a holy God and sinful people? You know how he does it? He gives them sacrifices. Who does that point to? The sacrifice of innocence for the sake of connecting a holy God with unholy people. That's Jesus. I keep going on and on. Book after book in the Old Testament keeps telling one story. And the story is this. It is God's action in history to redeem, to put right all that's gone wrong in human rebellion. And he's going to do it through this promised person who is going to be the sacrificial lamb, who's going to be this glorious king, who's going to be the suffering servant. There's all these huge themes building up and they culminate, according to Jesus, in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the whole point of the whole Bible. It's all about him. Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. You can't understand this unless you understand the big story. Jesus, why did he come? He came to be a Messiah that suffers for us. That is why Jesus came. That is why it's necessary that he would suffer and enter into his glory. So that's the first way Jesus shows of himself. He, in a sense, takes off the blinders. You might say the first one he does through Scripture so we can see him. But the second one is the sign of the supper. There's another way Jesus reveals who he is to his disciples. It begins at verse 28. Look down with me, please, at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, <laughs> and he acted as if he was going to go further. Oh, it's great. Oh, no, no, no. Come, come, come eat with us. Oh, Jesus turns around. Like, I just love that. Like, what? That's so fascinating. Anyways, okay. Uh, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now, if you're a guest in a home, right, um, what do you do? If you're welcome to someone's home and someone is going to be hospitable to you and create uh, a meal for you, you go in, you sit down at the table, and you eat the food that they give. They are the host, you are the guest. Enough said. Look what Jesus does. He's at table with them. Verse 30, verse 30. He takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. Jesus has done this before, hasn't he? Does this sound familiar to anyone here in this room? It's because Jesus did this before in the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. Just a few, just two chapters back. The text says this. Jesus, when he's with his disciples... He took bread, he gives thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And what does this supper signify? Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This supper is a sign that points to who I really am because this supper, this breaking of the bread, me giving my body for you, it is a sign of what I've come to do, which is what? A Messiah, not with a sword, but a Messiah going to a cross, suffering and dying for you on your behalf under the justice of God that your sin deserves. This is what this supper signifies. And this, look at what happens when Jesus explains this, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Verse 16, can you just flip back to verse 16 real quick in your Bibles, okay? Look at the text, look at the text. Verse 16, Jesus, right, says their eyes were what? Kept from recognizing them, okay? Then go to verse 31, what does it say? And their eyes, what, were opened and they, what? 
recognized him. Now, what's happening from verse 16 all the way to verse 31? Two things, and the two things are this. Jesus shows his disciples who he is by showing the story of Scripture centering on him and showing them how the supper is about him as Messiah suffering and dying on their behalf. Jesus shows his disciples who he is by telling them what he came to do through the Scripture and through the supper. That is how we see Jesus. And how do they respond? Look at this. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? So here they are having a Bible study with Jesus, and their hearts are on fire. They are filled with joy. Their hearts are burning within them because they're seeing, they're seeing their Messiah, Jesus, for who he is as he's opening Scripture to them. That's why we just love the Bible here, because we see Jesus through these pages, all of it, all about Jesus, our hearts burning within us. But not only that, they not only have joy in seeing him, but you see what happens when you see something amazing, you got to go speak about it, right? I grew up in Phoenix, which means the Grand Canyon is not too far, and I've seen the Grand Canyon a few times, and it's almost, it's just hard to describe. It is so majestic. It is so wonderful. It just thrills your heart when you park the car and you take those, like, 70 yards towards the edge, and you're like, wow, it is amazing, and you can't help but just talk about it. You speak about what you see. What do these disciples do? Verse 33, they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Whoa, seven-mile run? That's impressive. Okay, and they found the 11 who were with them. What do they say? They say, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told, look at this, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They go and they say, man, we have seen Jesus. We've seen Jesus as he opens up scripture for us to see him here. And then he, he was breaking bread, which is that sign of him as Messiah suffering and dying on our behalf. Man, we've seen Jesus. He is risen again and we testify to the things that we see. So what does this mean for Parkview? We're in a series, right, of the DNA of Parkview. How does Luke 24 help us with our DNA here at Parkview? Well, a few things. First, for those of you who are not following Jesus, I wonder if the reason you're not seeing Jesus is because you have a misunderstanding of why he came. There's a lot of conceptions, a lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. He's a moral teacher. He is a social revolutionary. The list could go on and on and on. But are you allowing Jesus to tell you who you are? Last time I checked, it's really unkind to assume things about someone without letting them speak for themselves. What if, what if you just let Jesus speak to you about who he is by going to Matthew or Mark or really any one of these books? Because you know what, what any of these books in the Bible are about? Jesus. And so my call to you is this. If you're not yet following Jesus, would you come to see Jesus for who he is? That he's come to deal with your deepest, most fundamental problem, which is not outside of you. It is inside of you, friends. You have a terrible, terrible disease, a moral disease called sin. And Jesus is the great physician who loves healing sinful people. For those of you 
who have committed to life here at Parkview, I just want to say a handful of things, okay? First is this, are we, are we seeing Jesus in Scripture? In our community groups, are we opening up the whole Bible and, and, and trying to see Christ? Where is Jesus located in this story? You know, one, one of the things I like to think through, what I've learned is, you know, how does each story point to Jesus through a promise that's awaiting fulfillment? How does it prepare for Jesus by exposing a human need that only Jesus could meet? How does this text reflect who Jesus is through a pattern? There's all these different ways to study Scripture. But are we doing that together? And even personally, are we, are we not satisfied to put down our Bibles and to close our Bibles or to shut off our Bible app until we, man, have we met with Jesus? Not just, not just fear, feeling spiritually good, but have we really encountered Jesus as we meditate and look at God's word? It's all about Jesus. Jesus wants to show you himself in his word. I bet you most of us would say, I want to love Jesus more. You know how you love Jesus more? You get to know him. How do you get to know him? By seeing him. Where do you see him? You see him here. You see him here. You see him here. He's all over the scriptures. It's all testifying to Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to love Jesus. Let's look. Let's look at our Bibles. Let's look at it and study and engage. Oh, parents. Parents, are we teaching our little children? You know what children love? Children love stories. And uh, here's one example of a wonderful book I might commend to some of your parents in here, okay? The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. There's so many helpful tools that you could read to little Jimmy or little Alice just that night before bed and to rescue them from the burden of seeing the Bible as basically tales of people who just had strong faith and people who were really obedient to God. And therefore, the Christian life is all about just obeying God. And the Bible tells me how to be a good person. No, the Bible is not primarily about that. The Bible is one story, one big story about Jesus. It's a story of God's grace, of how we actually did not obey God, of how we actually keep failing God. But God has so much love in his heart for sinful, broken people that he sends his son, Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. Are we teaching our precious little children how to read the Bible in that way? Second thing for us here at Parkview, not just scripture, right, but we see Jesus through what? The sign of the supper. I know for many of us, I would assume Communion Sunday, probably you're just like, oh no, man. Okay. Well, I'll just get through it, you know, and eat it. And you, no, 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 no. Do you know what's happening here? In the Lord's Supper, we actually are seeing Jesus. When the body broken, given for you, the wine, the blood shed for you, we're seeing a sign that's pointing to what Christ has done for us. It is, it is a great love token from Jesus right to our hearts. Are we celebrating, celebrating, embracing the importance, the essential nature of the Lord's Supper? Because do you see what happens in the Lord's Supper? We see Jesus. And finally, this. Friends, we need to become a community that speaks what we see. We gotta speak about what we see. You see, when you are studying this, one of, the, one of the main motivations for you to study the Bible is not so you can feel good about yourself that, oh, I'm a Christian, I read my Bible, check, and here I go. No, no, no. The reason why you study this is as you get to see Jesus in these pages, and he is so wonderful, 
and he just thrills your heart, you know what's going to happen with your friends that don't know Jesus? You know what's going to happen in your workplaces? You can't help. You can't help in your families, in your community groups. You can't help but speak about what you see. And let's do that. Let's speak about what we're seeing, how we're seeing Jesus, how wonderful he is. He's like a multifaceted diamond. And he has such brilliance from so many different angles. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, we're seeing Jesus and all these beautiful different angles. And are we giving each other the gift of speaking about Jesus? When I saw the Grand Canyon, I couldn't help but speak about it. And it's fun because when you speak about the Grand Canyon, people, oh, wow, that sounds so cool. I want to go there. I want to see that. Oh, can I tell you about Jesus? And recently, I was reading Mark 1, and it just was so compelling to me. Because in Mark 1 uh, and 2 and 3, uh, Jesus, he starts casting out demons, right? Which uh, might be odd for a lot of us in, uh, in our day and age. But what is Jesus really doing there? Here's what he's doing. I was helped by a little booklet to help me see this, okay? In the Garden of Eden, right? It's God's good world. There's no evil in the first two chapters of Genesis, right? What happens in, in uh, and God calls this one man named Adam, right? Adam is to protect the garden and keep it and to work it and to, and to not let any evil come in. Well, chapter three, what happens? First verse, a little serpent comes, a little crafty. What should verse two have said in Genesis three? And smash, Adam crushed a serpent, yes, what happened? No, they listened to the serpent speak. The failure of Adam to get rid of evil is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who comes, Jesus the great king, the true and better Adam, who comes to kick out the evil. And you know what Jesus does to our sin? You know what Jesus does when he sees evil? Jesus looks at it, and it's like a head of a snake, and he says, smash, because Jesus is our victorious king, and he is the true and better Adam who has triumphed over evil through his death and resurrection. I saw that, and it just thrilled my heart. And you know what? That same day, one of my friends said, Boyd, how was your morning? You know what I got to say? I got to speak about what I saw about Jesus. It wasn't anything magical. Revival didn't come, okay? Nothing radically changed in Iowa City, but it was this moment where I got to tell a friend about what I saw about Jesus because I opened up the Bible. Friends, are we seeing Jesus in the Scripture? Are we seeing Jesus in the supper? He wants you to see him. He's the great optometrist who's going to put on the lens that can help you see. It's our great Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great joy of living in your great story. Man, how amazing it is that Jesus, Jesus loves us to see him, and he shows us himself through the scriptures. He shows us himself through the supper, Lord, and we can't help but speak about what we see. And so here's what we pray. Through the preaching of your word, and now even as we sing, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would make this real to our hearts so that we would really, really see Jesus. Help us right now just to embrace all of he is right now, his kindness and his mercy and his love. He's the Messiah who suffered and he's risen again. He's conquered evil and death. And so really help us see. The only way that can happen is through your spirit, by your word, we pray right now. Amen.